page fright is recorded in Vancouver on the traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Hello, welcome back to Page Fright, the only literary podcast on the entire internet that I host. My name is Andrew French. I write under the name A.W. French, and I'm on Twitter at the Andrew French. And this is, of course, Page Fright, a literary podcast. Welcome back. Today's not Wednesday. It's Thursday because I'm slacking, and this is a late post. But I am on my way out the door to record episode 13, 14, with a very exciting guest. Um, but before I do so, I need to record this intro because today's writer is a very exciting one. She is an incredible writer of poetry and fiction. Her name, of course, is Carly Bloom, as you can tell from the title of the episode. Carly is a Vancouver-born writer of the aforementioned poetry and fiction. She is a 2017 graduate of the Writer's Studio. That's, of course, at SFU. Awesome program. Check it out. Uh, the Vancouver Manuscript Intensive and Chalene Knight's Advanced Poetry Workshop. Wow, we got a qualified guest today. Uh, her work has appeared in The Maynard, Train a Poetry Journal, Journal, Loose Lips Magazine, Bad Dog Review, Pulp Mag, and Guest Poetry Journal. Currently, she is the advertising coordinator for Shalene Knight's Learn Writing Essentials, and she lives outside of Vancouver with her husband and two children. Carly, I am so excited about this episode. We had a lovely conversation. She read some lovely poems. It's a great time. Everybody leaves very happy, and uh, it's fun. I, I really enjoyed talking to Carly. We talk about some heavier issues in the literary landscape. We talk about some not-so-big issues and we talk about the delight of each other's work, and I am very, very happy to have made this connection with Carly. She's a writer I have admired from afar for a decent amount of time here, and I hope that it, she is one that you will admire from up close in this episode and hopefully beyond afterwards. So without further ado, why don't we jump right in? <music> Carly, how would you describe your writing for people who are unfamiliar with your work? Yeah, good question. How would I describe my writing? Well, I talk a lot about confronting our patriarchal society. I like to explore internalized misogyny because um, I feel like it's had a huge impact on my life and subsequently my writing. Mm. Um, it all. I also kind of chase around the politicized nature of the female body. Um, and the elusivity of the family unit. Interesting. Um, I guess the best way for people who might not be familiar with your work to experience and understand what it's all about is to get you to read a piece. So right off the top, would you be okay with reading an excerpt or a piece? You bet. Sweet. So this poem is called French Braid. One. My mother can't do a French braid. I beg her to learn, ask each morning before school while she packs our lunches, wears her white nurse's clogs for work, makes our breakfast, gets my brother ready for daycare. My stepdad smiles at the scene, wrinkles fanning at the outskirts of his eyes. He sips black coffee, shrugs and says, Sorry, kid, that's mom's stuff. Two, we order a how-to guide from the scholastic book order, and every day I ask my teacher when it will arrive. 
At school, I fixate on the girls. The braids in front of me flop onto my desk. I watch how they shine, glossy, tight, precise. Each one a lost snake that found its way home. Three. When I visit my dad's house, my stepmother ushers me into the bathroom. I straddle the toilet. She sings a song that falls from pink pearl lips. Welcome to my shop. Let me cut your mop. Don't look so distressed. Can't you see your next? Ten years younger than my mother, her fingers nimble and confident, free of care, separate, hair with ease, arms flow and slip like liquid, pull firm at the base. When she finishes, I look in the mirror, my hair glossy, tight, precise. Looking back, a small face, sad with relief. Thank you. Wow, that's awesome. I really like that. Um, the repetition of those three words is so strong. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's a question I ask everybody with the first work that they read on the podcast. Uh, but where does this one come from for you? Well, I wrote this poem when I was working on um, my manuscript that I just finished a little while ago. Yay, and... finishing a manuscript. <laughs> Woo. <laughs> And um, a lot of that manuscript was me delving into my past and looking at a lot of um, a lot of memories and a lot of things that happened at the time um, that were very normalized that now as an adult, I look at through different lens and I realize uh, a lot of a lot of things affected me in a way and I grew up in sort of a blended household. I had a stepmom and I had a stepfather and it uh, the effect on me with those relationships was it was significant. Um, my dad ended up um, he left my mom for a younger woman and that sort of carried weight as it was and um, and my stepdad and I never really got along so. This, it was the impetus for this poem was those kind of broken family dynamics and um, that they're quite complicated. It's not a black and white situation. Yeah, and uh, that's definitely the case for so many people that uh, gets like overlooked in a lot of traditional writing. But I think now is sort of starting to come to like the forefront of writing is how um, that idea of like the nuclear family is becoming so uh, like out of touch with what reality really is yeah. um and like it sounds like that for more and more people stories like your own are kind of the new normal and in, in terms of like what uh, is is more popular and uh and is what is happening but um it's funny too i i write a lot about um my childhood which you could argue as a 22 year old i'm still in um but uh i write a lot about it and and going back to things and you kind of start to dig through and uncover memories that you don't realize impacted you as much as they actually did. I don't know if that's like a experience you can relate to, but it, I feel like it might be given the poem. Uh, definitely, I can relate to that 100%. You know, we're, our relationships with our family and our memories even, it, it's always evolving. And it's sort of every, I don't know, phase of our life we go through. It's like we're looking at it through a different lens and 
I know that the place that I'm in right now, it's a completely different lens than when I was in my 20s. Um, Mm -hmm. Things that were so normalized and seemed so benign now take on a different candor. And uh, I like exploring that. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, like it's funny for me, the way I put it there in that statement was kind of like, yeah, I'm older and so I can back and see things differently but you're right that at different points of maturity you're gonna come to the table with different things and understand these memories in different ways and I think it's fascinating to me to see writers who go back to their childhood as a source of inspiration do it for a large portion of their career because the way that they approach that childhood changes so frequently that it's like it fascinates me it really does uh, I'm, I'm really into this whole like exploration of memory because especially with poetry um, there's not too much else to write about than memory. I think the most impactful poems come from um, sort of meditations on memory and specific moments in our lives. I agree. And those memories change too as you get older and you know you look at them through different eyes and they affect you differently too. I actually just finished uh, Russell Thornton's The Broken Face, too. That's another one that will kind of like go back. It, it really um, strikes me because I'm from North End and so is Russell Thornton and he's writing about that sort of thing. Um, and kind of how like place changes too over time yeah. in addition to like uh, one's role. Because I think I obviously have no experience being a parent, let alone a mother. Um, but I imagine that you you come to view yourself in a really different way when you have this person or these people who you are suddenly accountable for. Um, how does that shift the way that you think and then as a tangent, the way that you write? Yeah, it it definitely has an influence. Um, I think as a woman, it, it can be a very vulnerable place to be in, sort of so tangled up in another human. Uh, That was the case for me, at least. And I was never not aware of how much work it would take for me to um, untangle myself from another human's identity. Um, I guess it was, I work from a place of fear and anxiety from that. I, sometimes when you love something so, or someone so much, it, it can kind of, um, I don't know, it can just, it can leave you in this place where you're like, well, where did I go? Yeah, 100%. And uh, the word keeps coming up, vulnerability. I think this is essential to a lot of writers, but specifically dealing with the themes that that it seems that your work um, seeks to tackle. Um, this idea of vulnerability is challenging in a way, but also I think there's a sense in which the page can become a safe space for a lot of people because there's... No pressure. Well, there is actually. There's a ton of pressure to publish things. I was going to say there's no pressure, but that's such a lie. Uh, I wish, um, right? But yeah, no kidding. But uh, ideally, you don't put too much pressure on yourself to put things out into the world or to create, you know, spectacular writing. A lot of the times, it can be a really safe space to just have a notebook and and to write thoughts down and try to brainstorm even in your writing um, how to to deal with the the metaphor and the idea that you're talking about. Unta- angle yourself um, and and find some sort of, um, I'm, I'm struggling for the word, but almost like an independent identity um, 
but yeah, that that writing from a place of fear and anxiety is always interesting to me. Um, I I find it difficult to write through those things myself. Um, what tips would you have, I guess, for somebody like me who <laughs> is struggling to tackle like these larger, more menacing emotions? Yeah, it's I'm still working through it. <laughs> I it's funny because I think one of my biggest fears and anxiety is that my fears and anxiety will show up on the page because in the past I've had mentors that have picked up on that. And um, I don't know. I just, I think I try to come at like a first draft um, of a poem or even anything just as if I'm writing it in a journal. So then I don't feel as if um, it has to stay. And mm -hmm that I'm just kind of pouring myself out on the page and I can take it out later if I want. But then you see that if it actually does start to work, you don't want to take it off the page. And then that's where, you know, the gonads <laughs> come into play and you're like, oh, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm, I'm brave right now. I'm doing this. Okay. Everyone's going to be able to see this. Yeah. And uh, writing can be such an act of bravery. It's fine because you, what you, I think, uh, at least what I pick up on in the statement you just made is like the sense in which a piece of paper can go from the safe space I was describing and just having like a journal to, oh, crap, now I'm really vulnerable because this is actually pretty good and I want to use it for something. <laughs> and yeah. uh, there's such a fine line there that uh, terrifies me. I had my first experience like a couple months ago where I had a piece published and somebody at a sort of like a literary event came up to me and were like, hey, I love that thing that you wrote in person said this to me. And I realized that there are people who actually, and not that there's a huge number of them, but there are people who actually read the things that we write as writers. And that terrified me. I had like a couple days where I had to like kind of tackle with this idea because I thought I'd just been sitting in my room doing this and seeing it pop up on a computer screen. But there are people who read these things that we write from such vulnerable positions um, that it's so easy to forget. And there's such a fine line between that safety that you feel and then vulnerability. And that requires such bravery to tackle too, that I think any writer who's doing that uh, the way that you are in your work deserves a lot of praise for that. Yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. I get really freaked out if even if someone says, oh, I read that read that poem that uh, you published online or wherever it was and I'm like oh no which one you know yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it still scares me especially if they're people I've known for a while family as well I don't know it it'll get easier I guess I don't know yeah um one of the things you mentioned a little bit back that I want to talk about a little bit is you said some of your mentors picked up on some stuff in your writing um I like talking to people about the idea of mentorship in writing because I feel like there is a writing community out there that's what this podcast has taught me um but it's hard sometimes to find somebody who can help you into that community and that's what I think the role of mentors often is not just going through writing pieces and picking out parts and saying this is what you should change or your writing looks like this but also welcoming you to a sense of community um what advice would you have for people who might feel kind of isolated in a literary community yeah, I can totally relate to that. Um, I, like I said, being a mom, um, and I also don't live right in Vancouver. I right. live in the suburbs of Vancouver. So it, it you can get isolated for sure. I think 
the key is to just say yes to every opportunity. Try to, you know, push yourself and go out to events and, you know, go up to people, introduce yourself. It's about making friends and in the community and just sort of seeing what everybody's doing. It's, uh, it's useful. And, you know, everybody's in the same boat as well. You know, we're all terrified. (laughs) I mean, I love it, but I feel like we are, you know, we're all terrified to go up to each other. We, you know, we do want to be vulnerable, but we don't, I think just, you know, if there's a workshop going on, go to it. You know, if, if there's an opportunity to speak to a writer that you admire, go do it. What's the worst that could happen? This is true. Um, this actually might be a good time to bring in our question from the last episode's guest. Um, and I am very excited about this question because I think it relates perfectly to what we're talking about. Um, or maybe it it is something that uh, is composed of a lot of the elements that we're talking about. But the question is, is there anything you want to write but don't feel ready to write? Mm, that is a really good question. Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of things that I'm, you know, on the cusp of not really being ready to write. There's so many things. I think, you know, you're always afraid of the people that your writing is going to affect negatively. To me, that that's sort of what it comes down to. And I know you're supposed to be fearless in your writing and just not worry about those things, sort of, you know, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. But I I have a tough time with that because my life is built around the relationships I have with my family. So there are a few no-fly zones. I, I feel like I still have to be respectful and figure out how to not, I don't know. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky question. Uh, I feel like it's true, though. There's, like, tons of things for everybody who uh, is a writer who, that they're like, oh, man, I would love to someday write this thing um, or talk about, you know, this subject or whatever it is, whether it be a project or a particular theme or issue that they uh, want to work on, um, but don't feel like they have the skills yeah. to do that. And the hardest thing is like building those skills because where do you go? How do you, how do you do that? Yeah, that's, it is so tough. I I feel like you probably won't catch me writing too much about my own marriage. (laughs) (laughs) I think that that's one that I don't, it's just so one of those sacred things. Like it's, it's almost too intimate. I think I can write fiction um, that is maybe inspired by my own marriage but yeah that's a tough one for me that would be I guess that'd be my formal answer (laughs) I like it yeah I think there are things like I I have things in my own life as well that I just straight up don't write about uh because I think that it's important to have a divide it's like the whole work-life balance thing that they stress on people in business school I, I went to business school for like two years so that was really drilled into me um but it's important to have like a divide between what you're doing on the page and what you're doing in the actual world uh for me at least it's nice to be able to turn off the writer side of my brain for a little bit uh I find but this is a literary podcast so we're not turning it off right now <laughs> um on that note um we have 
one thing that I like to do on the podcast is bring people books, but since we're doing this over Skype, uh, we will go to our trusty poetry and voice random poem generator. Carly, would you be willing to read us a random poem? Yeah, I would love to. Awesome. So let's see here. We have a poem by Michael Karami. I hope I pronounced that correct. You got it. <laughs> it's called Newfoundland Ceiling Disaster. Sent to the ice after white coats, rough outfits slung on coiled rope belts. They stooped to the slaughter, gaffed pups, slit them free of their spotless pelts. The storm came on unexpected, stripped clean of bearings. The watch struck for the waiting ship and missed it. Hovelled in darkness two nights then, bent blindly to the sleet's raw work, bodies muffled close for shelter, stepping in circles like blinkered mules, the wind jerking like a halter, minds turned by the cold, lured by small comforts, their stubborn hearts rehearsed. Men walked off ice flows to the arms of phantom children, wives of fire, laid in imaginary hearths. Some surrendered movement and fell, molting warm flensed from their faces as the night and bitter wind doled out their final pitiful wages. That's a good one. That is a good one. Wow, I like that poem. I, I love this generator because it comes up with like poems from so many different eras about so many different things uh, that it covers such a wide range. And this was a cool one. I really like this one. I like the line lured by small comforts uh, that stuck with me. I feel like I like I imagine a lot of nautical imagery. I don't really know if the, any references were made to ships. Oh, yeah, there was a ship. But I, I enjoy a good nautical poem. It definitely put me in that space as well. I, <laughs> I can see where you're coming from, even though it didn't explain explicitly mentioned too much like nautical imagery I got the idea and I was there I feel it I could I could taste the salt water <laughs> yeah good one <laughs> um yeah really cool um what do you look for when you read a poem like what what are some of the things that draw you to specific poems yeah I I always say that I kind of just want to be <laughs> punched in the gut by a okay. poem you know I I want it to kind of just grab me in some way, make me feel something, shake me up a bit. Um, almost, I want to feel a little bit different than I did before I started the poem. Hmm. I like that idea. I think there's something about like having an effect on the reader that's important. But this idea of just feeling a little bit different from the start of reading a poem. You know, the, so many people are like, oh, I need a poem to change my life or it has to like have significant weight to it but in a lot of cases it's just like a minor shift in how I feel or the way that I'm thinking is I think the goal of a good poem at least the way that I'm looking to read it yeah like I just want to feel altered in some way emotionally and I feel like that doesn't take much with me because I'm a very emotional person <laughs> <laughs> but I I love those books of poetry that you just you feel like a different person at the end um mm -hmm. 
Shalene Knight uh, actually had recommended to me a book a little while ago called Blood Dazzler by Patricia Highsmith. And that book truly changed me when I was finished. It's it's a collection of poems sort of um, centering around pre, um, during and post uh, Hurricane Katrina. And it just, it really altered me. It was just such a visceral collection of poems and so confrontational and heartbreaking. I would that recommend sounds- it's like very, very interesting to read that. I, I think that's a book I'm going to read. <laughs> you really should. It's a staple. Yeah, it sounds really, really good. Um, yeah, I mean, here's a good question, I suppose, is like, if you're recommended a book by a friend, <laughs> this is uh, kind of taking this in a different way, but if you're recommended a book by someone, what do they have to say about that book to sell you on reading it? Yeah, not a lot, I feel. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of such a bookworm and I'm also like I always say I'm I'm like a crow, like any sort of shiny recommendation, I'm like, ooh, let's look at that, you know? I'm just curious if anything. Um I yeah, it doesn't take much. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I think I usually ask, like, how, like, why are you recommending it? Like, what about it struck you? And mm. I usually like to see their emotional reaction to it. If they're like, yeah, yeah, check it out. But I don't know. I like it when people feel very compelled um, to say how it ch- changed them or, you know, like, oh, my God, it was amazing. And just I like to see people's reaction. Yeah, no, I feel that. I definitely feel the same way. I think, like that there's a difference for me between recommending a book and advocating for a writer and I think the people who really like almost put their neck out to like really really sell you on a book I'm like okay I'm gonna read this for sure and even if I don't like the specific style like I'm not really a big prose guy but if somebody was like oh you really need to read this novel I'm gonna read that novel um and try to understand at least why they liked it even if I don't um and that can be the challenge sometimes with taking on genres that you're not used to like I'm a pretty big poetry reader and writer but don't really dabble in much else um but it's always fun to expand your horizons too so maybe I should I don't know (laughs) yeah I love a good passionate recommendation that's really what it's all about because if you don't like I don't know people can be like oh stylistically this has this 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 and this and I'll be like okay yeah maybe I should read it from like a writing standpoint just to see what they're doing with techniques but when somebody is genuinely like oh this book changed my life or this book like made me do this thing then I'm on board and I'm ready to read (laughs) yeah because then it it had an, an impact on them in some way exactly so we're going back to that idea of uh of feeling changed by a text, which I think is really important. Um, but that's also a high bar to live up to as a writer. You got to change people with your yeah. writing. I think changes can occur on such a small level. This it, is true. It doesn't have to be a large one. I think there's sort of a spectrum of change when it comes to how a book alters you. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. Um, speaking of changes and changing people with your writing, uh, would you be willing to change the audience with another piece? Oh, (laughs) very good segue. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, my next poem 
I will read, let's see here, is called Notes on American Psycho. Uh, I like to write a lot about pop culture. Um, Sweet. So this one has a bit of that. It was hard not, it was hard to notice the cracks forming in my Brett Easton Ellis phase or how the rush of steeping myself in misogyny spat me out unscathed, a proud metal worn, a refusal to blink, while shining metal tongue licked contusions all over my body, hand over chest. I even measured my heart rate just to check, no change. Even when Patrick Bateman smears Brie onto a sex worker's vulva, open and glistening, defenseless like primed Thanksgiving turkey, releasing rats to gnaw at her insides. And still, through all of this, I remained unchanged, unaware of the tiny fist, the knot in the glass fanning out into spider web atlas. Only seen once, I opened my eyes from the deepest sleep, skin stretched vast and drum taut like the shrink-wrapped copies of American Psycho still sold in bookstores overseas. Ooh. Ooh, that was cool. I really like that poem. Like, I really, really like that poem. That was really, really cool. It's sort of a, a nod to my early 20s and quite literally my Brett Easton Ellis face. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it. Uh, I I mean, you literally said the words in there, I remained unchanged, which directly connects to our conversation. But I also really liked the line, I even measured my heart rate. That idea of measuring your heart rate while you're watching something to see if you're physically impacted by it is awesome. I really like that idea. That's such a cool image. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so this one talks about going through a phase and consuming American Psycho in its various forms. Um, how did this text influence you? Yeah, um, like I said, it was sort of a nod to my um, very problematic Brett Easton Ellis phase in my early 20s. I think I think back then I, I tried to alter myself to kind of fit that image of, um, you know, the, the guy's gal, you know, and um, absorbing certain materials that I thought were cool. And I... I tended to ignore how it made me feel and how it actually triggered me. Um, and it probably wasn't the best thing for me to read based on experiences from my past. And it's just sort of talks about um, absorbing violence, especially violence towards women and really forcing yourself not to have a visceral reaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, definitely... Interesting. I feel like there's a sense in which as writers and as readers, it's easy to kind of overlook things that should probably shock you. Am I wrong with that? Like, I, I feel like it's very, very common for a writer or a reader, because we're so frequently being shocked and moved and changed in various ways, to come to a text uh, uh, whether it be like a film or a book or whatever, and just completely overlook an act of violence or something that is overtly problematic um, just because we're so kind of blind to it and numb to it. Yeah, it's, yeah, you nailed it. It's true. It, um, 
yeah, it's almost kind of like a holding your breath contest during the most um, disturbing content. And I, I came to a point in my life when I realized that this sort of material for me was very triggering and um, I, I didn't really want to be reading stuff like that anymore or, you know, in this particular context when it's sort of this like white male dude bro kind of writing from that angle. I just, I, you know, I didn't want to do that anymore. Um, and I wanted to be a bit more mindful with what sort of media I consume. Yeah, totally. What, um, how do you kind of like filter things out then? Because it's difficult, right? To I'm just trying to push the idea a little bit. Like how, how do we kind of uh, draw lines and decide, okay, this is where I'm putting a book down, shutting a movie off or um, sort of moving away from certain texts. Um, how do you filter things out and make those decisions? I think a lot of it has to do with um, writer's intent and the context. I think that I always consider who's writing this piece and what is the intention? Is it done in an exploitive way? Is it is it done just for sort of pure shock value or you know to earn cool points? Um, if it's to to propel the narrative and if it's to sort of make a commentary, a constructive commentary in some way, I'm all for it. And then to me, there's a there's good reason. Um, but when it's sort of done in a mindless way and in a gratuitous way, that to me is where I do draw the line. I think that's a very, very good set of criteria. <laughs> I think that's a very appropriate way of doing it. Um, certainly there's sort of like constructive ways to use um, certain ideas that are often sort of flagged down, but uh, it's those unconstructive ways that are uh, so often often it problematic and so frequently present in our literary culture too uh somehow i don't know how these things get published but they do and it's shocking um american psycho is a really good example of that it um you know it, that was like the cool book to read when i was younger and you know there are some parts about the book that work like i always did like the pop culture influences on it um that's big in my writing and big in, you know, the type of reading I do like to read. But it just, I don't know, I, I suppose looking at it from the age I'm at, the fact that I'm a mother, it just, it's a little gratuitous now. And I mean, Brett Easton Ellis has kind of shown his true colors as of late. So it's it true. <laughs> kind of just showed us himself. This is this is very fair. Do you think there's such thing as cool points in our literary landscape? Like the way that, like we essentially uh, reached out to each other over Twitter. And I find that like the Canadian writing sphere on Twitter is kind of like, I think there's such thing as cool points out there in our world as well. What do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't really know. <laughs> um, cool points. That's I, I don't ever really like consider myself cool. Like I have this like vision of myself as like a pretty big nerd. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm the person to be asking about that. <laughs> it's weird for me to tell you that I think the cool points are connected to the nerdiest people because yeah. it's very funny to me that you brought that up. I feel like 
like the cool points for me, like people get cool points for being super committed to what they're writing about and super in love with what they're writing. Uh, that to me makes a text really cool. And that's where I'm like, oh, shoot, okay, this person is really in this and they're really having fun with their writing or they're really addressing something meaningful uh, uh, and they're owning it 100% and being super nerdy and super into it in the best way. That for me is like, okay, I need to read that. That's so cool. I completely agree. I think that's sort of a more adult definition of cool, you know? Yes. Fred Easton Ellis was considered cool when I was younger. And, you know, it's that sort of facade that he created, that sort of wayfarer, Ray-Ban wearing, you know, cool boy. But now I fully agree with you. It's owning your writing and writing about whatever you're writing about very passionately that to me is it's cool yeah a hundred percent I want to talk to a little bit this is a shift in topic but I want to talk a little bit about kind of the writing landscape and how uh I mean you mentioned isolation being literally like remote and geographically separated from things um like I'm at like basically UBC now which is like kind of in Vancouver, it's like pretty close. Uh, so I'm not super removed, but I do feel removed from what's going on in like Toronto. And I feel removed from people who are writing at like a completely different level from me and this sort of thing. I think there's so much isolation. How do you kind of confront that and stay connected? I know we talked about like getting out to events and doing that sort of thing, but when it's physically not possible to do that, how do you overcome that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Cause I still sort of sort through that with myself. Twitter is amazing. I feel like the Canlit community is so plugged into Twitter and you can meet really amazing writers. Um, like I've met really great writers halfway across the country that way. Um, but I think at the end of the day, writing is isolating and when you have this vast landscape that is Canada and we're all kind of interdispersed I guarantee you almost every single one of us has felt isolated at one point I think there are pockets of moments where we feel connected and it's important to kind of cling to those moments and remember them when we feel at our most isolated hmm. I really like that uh, I think it's very true it's difficult to kind of provide like concrete, this is what you need to do to get connected to writers. But I think one of the most uh, useful concrete tips is if you're listening to this, and I don't know how you would be if you don't have a Twitter account as a writer, because that's really the only place you can find out about this podcast. But uh, if you don't have one, go make one, because uh, it's so easy to get involved in the writing community just by saying, hey, I like this book, and like tagging an author. Uh, and you'll maybe be in conversation with them. I don't know. But uh, getting involved on Twitter was like huge. And everybody is so sweet and so welcoming. Carly will tweet at you. I'll tweet at you. Uh, <laughs> it's great. Everybody is so welcoming in that landscape. And um, it's one of the things that makes me very happy to be involved in this community or, or, or be becoming involved in this community. I suggest, or I suppose it's probably like the proper way of putting it. Um, but yeah, I, I think being online is a big part of things to stay connected, especially with so many literary journals being exclusively online now. Um, like it's, it's weird because you don't physically, it's so rare for me anyway, to physically hold my writing. Um, have you had that experience? Like, do you ever get like printed versions of your work, even if you just print them at home? And it's like such a disconnect for me when I hold yeah. a piece of my own work. 
It is. I totally agree with that sort of phenomenon. Um, I don't know. It feels a little bit more static to me than when it is online. And I, I didn't think that would be the case. Hmm. Maybe because it's so easily shared. Um, if it is online, um, it's, it's harder to sort of disseminate these physical copies um, as it is that if it's, you know, just a hyperlink away. That's so true. And it's weird to get like, I've been lucky. I've been printed a couple times in some journals and stuff. And when I get the physical journals, they go on the shelf and they're just kind of hanging out there. But when it's online, like you'll see people tweet about it or you'll see like somebody like a tweet or whatever um, that you that you post about the journal or something and it seems like a more dynamic and interactive space than just like a physical text does um in that sense i really like online journals and i also like that it's a lot cheaper to produce online journals which means there's more opportunities for writers like me um but <laughs> it's important i think uh there there really is like a weird disconnect for me whenever i physically get my writing but it's also such a cool moment to like see your words physically on a sheet of paper in a book or something. Um, it's really cool. I don't know. It is. I agree. I mean, they both have their positives, I feel. You know, I love the, I still love the tangible nature of the page and um, that uh, you can't deny that. Um, and it, it's also, it confronts you when you're holding a page in your hand. Um, you can't just swipe it away or click to something else it's there in your hands and you it's commanding your attention and for me that's where the page still is so relevant mm -hmm. I like that idea of the text kind of confronting you physically when you have it that's that's really cool um we are running low on time in our episode so Carly I have to ask is there a question you have for the next episode's guest yeah, I I was thinking about this, and I suppose my question is, the more visible you get as a writer, do you feel more pressure to expose more of yourself um, and cross sort of personal boundaries? Hmm. Uh, yeah, expose more personal things. This is a great question, and now is my favorite part of the podcast where I ask you the question you just asked. Uh, the more visible <laughs> you get as a writer, is there anything you feel pressure to kind of expose or, or tackle? Yeah, I feel that pressure all the time. Um, it's sort of like, oh, well, look at this. Oh, well, look at this pain. It's bigger and it's more gruesome. And, you know, you, wanna, you want to have the opportunity to publish your work and sometimes you feel like showing the public your pain is perhaps the the door to getting to that place but i try to just slow myself down and and ask if that's where the writing needs to go or do i need to go in a, a different direction and it might take the poem longer to get better but you know you have to listen to the integrity of the work i think yeah it's very true um, I often feel that, um, like you, you spoke a little bit about kind of, of feeling like, okay, let's say you get a piece published and it's about a specific, uh, moment of trauma or, or pain of some sort, um, that's out there. Often 
times as a writer, it's very easy to be like, oh, well, I felt more pain this time when I did that, and then try to tackle that thing. But often for me, when I start writing about things like that, it just, it's not a fun experience. Um, so I, I feel like there's often pressure to write about more and more difficult situations that you tackle. I think that pressure is put on both externally and then by ourselves too as writers. Like I feel pressure on myself to write my way through incidents of trauma and incidents of difficulty in my life. Um, I don't know if that's something that, that you feel the same way about, but that's, that's totally how I feel about it. Oh yeah, I feel the same way about it too. I've started pieces of writing that have taken me so much longer because I was sort of forcing myself to get comfortable with something that had happened to me that I wasn't quite ready to get comfortable with. And I think it's like we have to put remove that pressure from ourselves and just listen to what we're capable of and be kind to ourselves. And, you know, we don't have to sell it all. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, I, I could not agree more with that. Um, as I mentioned, we are running to the end of the episode. So Carly, could I get you to read one last piece for us? Of course. Amazing. This one is called How to Write Poetry for Your Adult Self. <laughs> <laughs> Insert lacy platitudes, trim all loose strings, flex questions and contemplate. Focus in on the fruit that glistens juice onto the counter. Pepper open word documents with the twinkling mica of wordplay and pain. Mop guts off the floor while you stitch it all together with the sinew and scraps found in the grainy planes of the internet. Find a long, bloviating word that only exists in German or even Swedish, describing that particular agony of the need for description and transcription on top of a mountain in the horse's ass of summer with a sexy dog named Jill. Carve it and round it, schnitzel pound it, bread it lightly in the crystal crumbs of your sluttiest nights. Remove telling details of former lovers and shitty family members through ablation and ablution. Paint them only with the finest of diluted acids, never full strength for it's hard to bleed onto a page burnt all the way through. Wow, that's really, that, oh man, that last line. Guys, uh, that's Carly Bloom. Uh, Carly, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Amazing. Guys, if you want to hear more from Carly, the easiest way to find her is probably on Twitter. Carly, what's your Twitter handle? I believe it's Carly underscore Bloom. Amazing. Uh, so go check her out on Twitter. Uh, I will post all of her information as well. But that is our episode. I'm going to throw it back to me uh, doing a little sign off. But thanks again, Carly. Thank you so much. you have it folks that is the interview with carly bloom carly thank you so much for your time i really appreciate you taking the time to come on to the podcast this has been page right for this week it is of course thursday when i'm posting this but the next episode will be out on wednesday the 16th i think is the date i'm not really sure but it's a very exciting episode with a very exciting guest so it's one that you're going to want to check out uh carly if you really like her work which i hope you did because i 
sure did. You can check her out on Twitter. She's at Carly underscore Bloom. Spell it like it's spelled in this episode. Uh, you can also get that link from her bio in the description for this episode. And if you like what we're doing here over at PageFright, you can do two things. First off, uh, you can uh, make it official. All you got to do is go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, which you can do on any podcast app, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you're using. You can also leave us a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. Oh boy, would we love some reviews. It would be so sweet to get some word out about this podcast, and that is one of the chief ways of doing so. That being said, that's kind of all for this week's episode. I really appreciate you taking the time to tune in. I have some new work up online, so check out what I'm doing. My name is Andrew French. I write under the name A.W. French. I'm on Twitter at the Andrew French. And this, folks, this has been Page Fright.